This is a Federal News Network podcast. When the Taliban overran Afghanistan following the American pullout, tens of thousands of Afghans who had helped American forces, they had to flee. They came here. My next guests responded to a sudden need for transportation, housing, and other aid. Their State Department team are now finalists in this year's Service to America Medals program. Two of them join me now in studio. We have the Director of State's Refugee Processing Center, Hillary Ingraham. Ms. Ingraham, good to have you in. Great to be here. And we have the Domestic Resettlement Chief, Holly Herrera. Ms. Herrera, good to have you in. Thank you. And the third award recipient, by the way, is Program Officer Kira Burdiner, who could not be with us this morning. And let's begin at the beginning. Situation was happening, and your award certificate says that you stepped into this fray to try to help these people. Did you step in, or who called you and said, hey, you got to do this? Hillary? So we were initially called in in July of this past summer, and it was when Afghan SIVs first started to be evacuated and come to Fort Lee, Virginia, to be able to have final immigration proceedings and then resettlement. And about one week before the first flight was set to arrive, my boss, Larry Bartlett, asked me to go down to Fort Lee, Virginia the next day to be able to help DOD start planning for Afghans to arrive at the base and put together a process so we could resettle them off the base. I went down the next day, ended up staying there for about a month, and then after that, Kabul fell, and we started preparing for tens of thousands of Afghans to come. They have to live somewhere. I mean, that's the initial thing, a place to put them outside of military bases. So my impression is that this involves a lot more than federal agencies, probably the local, state, I don't know, housing agencies. I mean, how does this all work? It was a huge effort. There really were many levels of coordination. I think at the first level and the beginning of this was the federal agencies. We really stood up a very holistic interagency effort. So we worked with FEMA. We worked with Department of Homeland Security, Department of Defense, Social Security Administration, Health and Human Services, and of course, the State Department. And we stood up a resettlement branch and we all worked together in order to determine how we could put in place the right structure, innovations, resources, programming in order to make this successful. And you went by that pretty quickly, set up a resettlement branch. That's no trivial task in the federal government. Did you have office space, funding, kind of support staff that you might have needed to get this done? So initially, DHS led the federal response and FEMA stepped in. We set up a unified command group. Bob Fenton was the lead of that. But we saw that the resettlement piece of this, trying to move 4,000 Afghans and resettle them to local communities across the country per week, was monumental. And there was no way that we could do that without a huge interagency team. And so we put together this proposal for a new org structure, a new group of interagency volunteers, all federal workers who could work together in this resettlement branch. The first version of the org structure was really rough that I sketched out on a piece of paper. And then we were able to get the approval of different agencies to bring their staff to be part of it. HHS gave us space. We were in the basement of one of their command centers for many months pulling this off. Wow. Just a detailed question. What about HUD, Housing and Urban Development? Yes, they were part of the resettlement branch. And in fact, I will be going later on today over to the resettlement branch, which still exists over at HHS. HUD has representatives there either on site or virtually, and they worked closely with us in terms of trying to identify housing resources for these Afghans who were arriving into the country in locations across the country in various communities. 
I imagine that particular detail is sensitive because some HUD-controlled housing or state authority-controlled housing ain't so great. And it's not necessarily where you'd want to put people freshly in the country, bewildered and be dazzled by this sudden change in their situation. Well, HUD is just one of the resources that we use, and I would I wouldn't want to speak for HUD's housing. However, I will say that even though Afghans were being very strongly considered and the resources that we could all bring to bear, they are still in the same lines as Americans are. There is not a preference given to Afghans in terms of getting into HUD housing because there are waiting lists around the country for this housing. Sure. And it's a variety of housing. But in terms of the majority of housing that needed to be found for these Afghans, as Hillary said, 4,000 a week arriving in communities across the country in the midst of a housing crisis nationwide, there were a variety of factors. We had a great deal of community support for this population. We always have had that for refugee populations, but given the high profile, the connection that we have with these Afghan allies, there was just an overwhelming level of support. So NGOs and maybe community organizations, religious associations, they were also part of this? Very much so. We work with nine resettlement agencies that have over 300 partners and affiliates around the country. They swung into action overnight, and they were able to step up and resettle this number of Afghans. It was almost 72,000 in a period of five months with very little notice coming directly to them from these bases around the country in a size and a scope that is just unprecedented for the program. What a nation we are sometimes. We're speaking with Holly Herrera. She's the domestic resettlement chief and with Hillary Ingraham, the director of the Refugee Processing Center, both of the State Department, both are finalists in this year's Service to America Medals program. And just from a personal standpoint, this sounds like something that was stressful and round the clock for you. What was it like? It was both the most challenging experience of my professional career as well as the most rewarding. The first couple of months after the evacuation, we would have calls every single night with our State Department folks at each of the bases, literally 9 to 10 p.m. every night, seven days a week. And it was a 24-7 operation. But the ability to be able to step in provide this support and help Afghan allies. So many of these people worked for the U.S. government or affiliated with the U.S. government, U.S.-based NGOs overseas, and be able to help them resettle to communities was an opportunity I'll forever be grateful for. And is there any kind of follow-up monitoring to make sure that where they ended up is a good place for them, that they're thriving and so forth? Do they plan mostly to remain in the United States? Holly? Yes. Now that we have gone through the first phase and moved almost 72,000 Afghans off of these safe havens around the country, we are now in the phase of our monitoring and evaluation. And we are conducting these virtual monitoring visits where we do quite a detailed overview and diving into case files, interviews, et cetera, to really understand how the Afghans are faring in communities where all of the services delivered that needed to be delivered. Are they in housing now? Amazingly, almost all of these Afghans are now in long-term housing in these communities across the country. And as I said, there are over 300 communities. And is there then the result of this effort some sort of a knowledge body that you have created? I hate the word playbook. It gets overused a lot. But do we have this? Do we have learnings that can maybe help in the future? 
Yes, in a few different ways. So first, one of the biggest long-term impacts of this is the creation of the resettlement branch, which is this coordination across the interagency, primarily between state and HHS, but then with other agencies as well, to be able to welcome refugees to the United States holistically through the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program. And then as we look to build back up the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program. The current ceiling is 125000 this year. Last year, we only resettled 11000 so we are really focused on rebuilding this program, and we'll learn the lessons through OAW and through this operation to apply to the U.S. Refugee you Admissions You must be program. looking over the horizon at what could fall out from Ukraine, for mm-hmm. example. Yes. At this point, we do resettle Ukrainians. We have resettled them for years. But in terms of this recent conflict, we are working closely with our partners at Health and Human Services to determine what services will be needed, who will be coming. Department of Homeland Security is actually leading an initiative called Uniting for Ukraine, and that is working with individuals to sponsor Ukrainians coming in. But it's a bit distinct from the program that we run, but there's no doubt that we will be involved in some way. Now, will this new branch that you stood up, will that remain? And I guess my question really is, what were you doing before the branch? What were your day jobs, so to speak? Holly? (laughs) Well, yes, as I said, I'm leaving from here to go to the resettlement branch. I go there every week. And we all really value it because it's that opportunity to sit in the same room across from colleagues at other federal agencies and face-to-face be working with them. That is something that we didn't have before. We would have distinct meetings, but not be sitting there working side by side. You really don't see daylight between us and our partners at some of these agencies, and none of us want to lose that. And your job before this was also (laughs) in the same area of resettlement. Yes. I have been working in this field since 95, actually. Wow. And starting at a nonprofit doing the resettlement at the national level, working with our programs around the country, and then went to Health and Human Services, which actually does resettlement as well, and then to the State Department quite a few years ago. And Hillary? I've been doing refugee and humanitarian work for over 20 years, both with NGOs, with the U.S. government, and with international organizations overseas. So this is really what I'm passionate about and why it has been so exciting to do this work the past year. Hillary Ingraham is director of the Refugee Processing Center, and Holly Herrera is the domestic resettlement chief, both with the State Department. Thank you both for being with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. And along with Program Officer Kira Berdinner, they are finalists in this year's Service to America Medals program. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader, and what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because you know sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most is being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. 
And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might've had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit it, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on the results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, 
And I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current, uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.